Support for this podcast comes from ODC Dance. The world-class company returns for Dance Downtown, March 27th through the 31st, with two electrifying programs and five works, springing from cartoon, the news, and human connection. ODC.dance slash downtown. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. At the outset of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, many expected the Russian army would quickly capture the country. But as the days have gone by, analysts, pro and amateur, have started to ask what slowed their advance, aside from Ukrainian courage. A set of explanations has taken hold on Twitter. They revolve around threads detailing logistical problems with the Russian force. The most famous of them, on truck tire maintenance, generated an entire round of mainstream media coverage. This hour, we want to put those bits of logistical information into context with a slate of experts on the mundane details of war fighting. Fuel, food, trucks, tires. That's coming up next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. That logistics plays a major role in war is, to put it mildly, not even Army 101. The word itself, which we now apply to target as often as the 82nd Airborne, was born in the military. In fact, a major reason the U.S. put so much effort into computing during the Cold War wasn't just nuclear weapons research, but logistical control, just managing all the stuff that the armed forces needed to control. Nonetheless, weapons systems get most of the attention when people talk about militaries. And Russia certainly seemed formidable from that perspective. What got less attention over the last years, and certainly in the run-up to the shocking invasion of Ukraine, was the logistical details and habits of the Russian army. Those details are obviously already important, and the longer the war stretches out, the more important they will become. So we're going to talk today about the logistics of the war and how to make sense of what we're seeing of it through media and social media. Joining us are Mark Champion, senior reporter of international affairs at Bloomberg News. Welcome, Mark. Hi, thank you. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Dr. Cynthia Cook, director of the Defense Industrial Initiatives Group and a senior fellow at the International Security Program at the Center of Strategic and International Studies. Welcome, Dr. Cook. Good morning. And finally, we have J.D. Williams, a senior international and defense policy researcher at Rand Corporation. Maybe you've heard of it. Williams has served on the National Intelligence Council and is a retired Marine colonel who served for 26 years. Welcome to the show, J.D. Good morning, Alexis. Yeah. Um, Cynthia Cook, I'd, I'd like to start with you. I was following the run-up pretty closely, and I don't feel like we actually heard a ton about the logistical side of the Russian army before the invasion actually happened. Is that because no one really believed that this was coming? The... Information we received on the buildup of Russian forces on the border of Ukraine was startling enough that that took most of the focus. 
those of us watching who are knowledgeable about logistics, we're certainly wondering about their supply uh, plans over the course of the, uh, the buildup. And certainly in the back of my mind, at least, was what, how they were going to resupply as they moved, if they moved into the Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what were you looking at? Like, what were the questions that were bubbling up in your mind about that resupply? Fuel, food, where they were going to, how they were going to support the soldiers, really just the basics. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. JD, um, as a uh, f- former Marine colonel, retired Marine colonel, how about you? I mean, as you watched the buildup, were you thinking to yourself like, Oh, they don't have enough trucks, or what are the lines or rail lines? Like, what were what's going through your head as you hear about those forces massing? So, um, it, it, as the force got larger, there's exact those questions. You know, where and how are they going to be able to sustain those forces? Um, I didn't. What I what we were seeing, particularly in the the commercial open source imagery, is a focus on the combat forces, as Cynthia mm-hmm. said. Uh, but the logistics is harder to see. It's it's something that I would have expected them to, um, you know, stockpile and and try to conceal. What surprised and we did see some things. I mean, we saw some field hospitals there towards um, the very end in January and February um, going up and be some that could have been messaging too um but what you know what surprises me is that you know the russians have built these camps on the eastern border of ukraine over a number of years and they've you know they have they have deployed large numbers of troops to these areas um, over time most recently i think last fall and that they should have you know kind of figured some of this out already and at mm. least have had the stockpiles there um and and it's hard to know you know if the stockpiles are there and they're just having trouble moving it forward or if they also um you know underestimated or didn't stockpile things yeah mark champion as you've uh, reported on this war. What are you hearing from your sources about the way the Russian military is doing this logistical operation, trying to move things uh, forward? Well, uh, there were two key things that I think I, I took away from talking to you know different people. And, and all the, the sort of first thing that they, they would say is that you know, logistics is clearly a, a serious problem for them in the north. Uh, you know, during this campaign, the the number one reason why that is true is probably that the uh, the same reason why they're having trouble with everything else, which is that the original idea that they had of how this uh, campaign would mm-hmm. go forward and their plan was just wrong. Um, and then once they you know they had they they sent all these different units in small units. And they were driving around the roads in northern uh, Ukraine as if they were still in Russia, um, without air cover, without you know. So, so they were ju- they were just open to attack, and they had uh, logistical uh, columns coming in also that were open to attack, um, and so that they those were really the the sort of this organization that resu- resulted from that was the sort of number one problem, and then a second sort of structural problem which just caught my interest in particular was. Just to just to recall that you know that the Russians do uh, a number of things about the militaries differently from the way that the U.S. does, for example, or most European armies, mm-hmm. and one of them is that they are very reliant on rail 
for logistics. Um, and uh, although, you know, there's no problem with the, the gauge or anything moving into Ukraine, because they didn't control uh, the, the areas they were moving into, they couldn't use rail. So they had to use, uh, you know, trucks, the same as everybody else. So they have that facility, but they just have it in smaller numbers. Mm. Um, and it's not their sort of go-to. They also don't have as many logistical battalions per, you know, to, per unit as, uh, you know, for the road as as the U.S. would have because they have this large rail logistical force. Um, and uh, so they were really sort of, you know, those two kind of structural issues uh, uh, what came across from what I was speaking, yeah. speaking to people. You know, Mark, sticking with you for a second here, that implies that once, if the Russians get control of these large cities, that some of these logistical issues could be cleared up fairly quickly as they're able to use their sort of greater logistical gearing. Yeah. So, in in you know, let's say that they took uh, Kharkiv and the, the those towns in the north, uh, and they were able then to you know fix whatever rails have been damaged in the fighting and to start using them, then you know that that would make life easier for them no 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 question uh, but you know, I, because of the way that this campaign is unfolded it, it seems very unlikely that's going to happen in time for them uh, to really use it in the fighting um because the fighting is so much heavier and they're going to i mean they're they're shelling hark if i'm you know the, there's going to be so much damage that it, it seems unlikely but their original thought when they went in was that this would be easy there'd be very little damage they were just sending lightly armed units to try and sort of just punch their way into the center of the towns and take over the governments. And in that scenario, uh, they would have been able to use the, the railways and, and you know, solve a lot of their problems. Right. We are talking about the everyday details of waging war and the logistical issues that have stalled the Russian invasion of Ukraine with Mark Champion, a senior reporter at Bloomberg News, Dr. Cynthia Cook, director of the Defense Industrial Initiatives Group, J.D. Williams, a senior international and defense policy researcher at RAND, uh, also served uh, in the military for 26 years. We'd love to hear from you. Have you served in the military? Do you have experience with the logistical issues uh, of, of war? What questions do you have about how these logistics are affecting the war in Ukraine? You can give us a call, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, KQED Forum, and the email is forum at kqed.org. Dr. Cynthia Cook, I wanted to ask you what you think people don't understand about the scale of the logistical operations that are necessary to supply a big military force. Let's let's use uh, tr- the challenge of trains as a frame for that um, in terms of what the Russians are facing in the Ukraine. Uh, so as as uh, Mark said, the Russians are heavily reliant on trains for their logistics, but that implies that uh, since since um, rail is not distributed throughout the countryside, you have to still get the material from the train to wherever the forces are fighting. You need a place to unload the train. You need to ensure that those tracks are safe. So one uh, challenge is ensuring that you have that ability to unload the trains and get them to where the forces are fighting. And that's a challenge. Um, So that is just sort of one of the many different complexities 
logistical complexities that the Russians are facing as they go into the Ukraine. And as, as Mark said, their hypothesis about how easy it would be definitely has not been uh, borne out. They're, I'm not sure what their framing assumptions with regard to logistics were, but we know that uh, the challenges that they face may be specifically linked to those logistics challenges. Reports of trucks not being able to move around because they don't have tires, the tires are worn out, uh, they're breaking down, are things that the, in the United States military would be planned for. You know, we, we do a, a pretty thoughtful job understanding what logistics challenges are and uh, supplying, supporting the troops as they move through the field. Yeah. You know, do you think that we know what's going on with their logistical challenges? Like, are we getting enough information from the field, you think, to be able to make determinations about how well the Russians are, are doing logistically? We can really only infer from what we see. You know, I don't have a, a red phone that's letting me talk to the head of uh, logistics in the Russian army. But what I do see is pictures on the internet of Russian soldiers looting grocery stores, which to me says that they don't have adequate food supplies. <laughs> We're talking about the everyday details of waging war, logistical issues with the Russian army in Ukraine. Joined by Mark Champion, senior reporter at Bloomberg News, Dr. Cynthia Cook, director of the Defense Industrial Initiatives Group, and J.D. Williams, sen senior international and defense policy researcher at RAND. And again, we do uh, love to hear from you. Have you been obsessively tracking these logistics issues, as I have? Uh, what have you learned? And what do you still have questions about? Uh, numbers 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This is Forum. Stay tuned for more after the break. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. We're talking logistics of the Russian army in Ukraine. I want to go to J.D. Williams, senior international and defense policy researcher at RAND. And I wanted to ask about this logistics Twitter to um, sort of uh, put a label on it. Um, there are a lot of people on Twitter and other social media platforms, but really particularly Twitter, who are looking at this media that's coming out of Ukraine and are extracting a lot of theories and perspective ideas about how the war is going. And there's a huge component, for me at least, of looking at 
logistics Twitter and looking at these threads and saying, wow, I'd never thought about looking at a picture of a heavy vehicle and examining its tires for signs of proper maintenance. Um, Do you think that that community of people who are using whatever expertise they have and bringing it to bear on this sort of what's called open source intelligence, uh, that is to say the the images coming out of Ukraine, do you think – that's valuable for us as people here in the U.S. to be to be thinking about these issues, or do you think it's misleading? I, I absolutely think it's valuable. Um, it it gives us insights um, into you know into some you know real details that in previous conflicts you know would would only emerge um, very very episodically, hmm. but at the same time you. Know, be cautious and and say you know is this is this simply a spot um, a one-time instance or is there enough um, is there enough of these instances uh, to make generalizations and to therefore um, draw some conclusions um, where I think we're at two weeks into the conflict um, we're not ready to write lessons learned and we're not ready to declare um, any any you know, outcome yet of the conflict. But as Cynthia said, I, I think we're seeing enough to be able to draw some some inferences that are that are probably pretty good. Um, and some of those inferences, you know, deal with, you know, the maintenance issues that, that we've talked about, um, how the Russian forces may be foraging, although that could simply just be some discipline problems um, in the in the Russian military as, as well. Um, one of the things that I, I don't think we're, we've seen much on that would be very, I think, interest, you know, interesting and also indicative is what's going on with their medical system. Mm. Um, the casualty figures that have come out, you know, there's a wide range of them. The, you know, the Ukrainian ministry says 10,000 killed, um, DO, you know, DOD, and I don't think anybody's got a really good handle on it, but if it's at least a couple of thousand killed, then, you know, usually you factor two, three, or four times as many wounded. Um, and those wounded soldiers have to be taken care of. Um, as I said, we, you know, we saw some hospitals in the deployment areas on the Russian side of the border, but you gotta, you know, you gotta get the wounded back to those hospitals, which is a transportation problem. It's a, it's a medical problem. And this is another area that, that uh, the Russian military um, hasn't, is not as strong as the West, and in some cases may even be a little more callous about it. Uh, but if they're not taking care of their wounded, then, then you know, morale, you know, indications, again, morale isn't great in the, in the forces that are in Ukraine. And if you're not taking care of the wounded, that's really going to impact your morale. Yeah. Mark Champion, wanted to ask you, you're trying to present uh, a realistic picture of the war for for your readers at Bloomberg, obviously. And you're talking to sources. You're you're on Twitter like everybody else, I'm sure. How do you go about evaluating this relative importance of different nuggets that come up, like the tuck, the truck tire maintenance, or thinking about the rail heavy nature of Russian logistics, or even you know what we just heard from JD about the importance of sort of medical facilities. How do you go about like trying to put those things in in context for yourself, and so you can do it for readers? I think you have to just sort of try and keep a, a, a sense of perspective. In my case, you know, because I'm not an expert in anything, uh, it's to try and keep 
a, a sense of perspective of, of what you don't know. So uh, that's a lot. And, uh, you know, you can you can settle on something that you find interesting and that you think it's, you know, worthwhile and important to let, you know, to get out there. And, you know, it, it could be the, the train aspect or, uh, uh, you know, various different things. But you just try and keep that in in you know, and, and deal with that issue in a story and then make very clear that uh, this is only a piece of the picture. And, uh, we, you know, you can't be sure because we actually have very little data, despite everything on Twitter and so on. There's very little, you know, verified, reliable data. We're just trying to patch this thing together. I mean, one thing that really strikes me that is not fully, I think, you know, understood uh, is that there are really two completely separate uh, uh, theatres um, mm. in this war, or three, in fact, but, you know, two uh, that are, are moving. And the one in the south is very, very different from the one in the north. And in the south, you had a much more settled, um, you know, because there were these bases that have been in Crimea for a long time, you had a very settled uh, situation, presumably with, you know, more permanent logistics and so on. And you've had very, you know, a much more successful campaign down there for the Russians. Um, it's gone actually, you know, not too far off to plan down there. Uh, and uh, they, they move quite quickly. They were moving more than 100 kilometers a day, uh, which, uh, you know, is, is quite fast. Uh, and, you know, the, the logistical problems that they've had down there are the ones you would expect, which is just you know, logistics catching up with you. Um, but they haven't had these, you know, massive snarls uh, that you've had up in the north and, and just sort of the chaotic system there. Yeah. Cynthia Cook, I wonder if you feel differently about the way that this open source intelligence is is coming out or or at least it's it's relative importance to other ways of sort of knowing what's happening on the ground. Well, we have the information we have, and those of us who are working on an unclassified level have to rely on this information to make inferences about what's happening. Uh, just getting back to the importance of logistics, I don't think we can really have this conversation without the famous quote, amateurs talk tactics, but professionals study logistics. It really is critically important to any campaign. And just seeing the challenges that the Russians have had, it's clear that a possible response on the part of the Ukrainians uh, engaging in asymmetric warfare is to attack the Russian supply lines. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the things that just seems quite obvious is holding all those rail lines when you don't actually control the, the country. And there's all kinds of irregular units of Ukrainians uh, strikes me as a very difficult uh, logistics problem. Um, Let's, That's a great point. Yeah. So when we think about all the vehicles that we bring in, we can we can focus on the vehicles and what they're doing. Each of those vehicles requires refueling. So they also need fuel trucks. Those fuel trucks have drivers. Those drivers need food and, and support, too. Those fuel trucks also need to be protected. So there's additional security uh trucks or forces as well. So really the logistics tail is a much bar bigger part of any campaign than uh, people think about because they're looking at all the, you know, the cool tanks and the cool, the cool trucks. Mm -hmm. Let's bring in Joel from Martinez, who actually has some experience with logistics himself. Welcome. Hey, thanks for uh, having me on. Uh, yeah, I was uh, actually, uh, I 
served in Iraq at a, a Marine cargo unit um, from 2005 to 2006 at a forward base. And, you know, most of the supplies had to be moved by air because uh, moving them by ground just wasn't safe enough. We kept on losing um, a lot of our shipments. And, you know, I was as I was watching the news, I could see I'm like thinking, you know, moving moving with supplies by ground is like, you know, you, you you're you're supplying the combat units up forward that's great but now you got to now you got to protect the supply units moving by ground so mm-hmm. it's it's basically a death by a thousand cuts because you know wh- where do you find the troops to protect your supply lines right. and and the thing is is that you know and it's true an army runs on its stomach not only food fuel oil you know to keep those trucks running tires and the most obscure things will shut down a whole convoy. Like, what, like give us an example. Air filters. Um, you know, it's, it's the brake pads. You know, uh, it's the craziest things. All of a sudden, it's like, you know, we had the same thing happen, which was, you know, a little tiny part literally could fit in your palm of your hand with, you know, keeping an aircraft on the ground. It was like, you know, we got to have this. And it was like, you know, we had aircraft come in specifically for to carry a box that was no bigger than a cell phone, you know, to fly to some other base just to get an aircraft off the ground. I mean, that was the U.S. military, you know, pretty, you know, no slouch, you know, with regard to materials and stuff like that. I can't even imagine the problems that they're having over there. I mean, it is just, I mean, and, and the thing is, is that, you know, if you, you know, it's expensive to maintain equipment it, it, wherever you are. I can guarantee you that the Russians weren't, you know, adhering to any kind of rock solid maintenance schedule. So once that stuff all gets rolling down the road, two or three days in, stuff starts breaking down left and right. And you can see it, you know, a 40 mile convoy. That's crazy. I mean, yeah. Like when you saw that, were you just like, oh, that's logistics problems? Oh, it was totally, it was, well, it was bad, (laughs) bad planning and logistics. Um, You know, they were showing trucks three or four wide on a highway that was, you know, designed for, you know, typical two lane. I can only imagine. And the thing is those drivers, those aren't combat troops. Those guys are behind the lines, you know, not trained as well. They're taking pot shots. I can guarantee you that those guys are taking civilians are taking shots at those guys all the time. Um, which, you know, makes you really loved your job. Um, and they don't have the equipment. They probably don't have the guns. They probably don't have the, the, the Kevlar or whatever they're using, bulletproof. You know, they're probably just wearing, you know, just standard military fatigue. And, you know, and it's cold. Um, I can only imagine the truck's got to be at least 30, 30 years old. So the heaters don't probably don't work. Um, they're hungry. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so unless you're driving a truck that's hauling the food, you're probably really hating life right now. Yeah. <clears throat> Man, Joel, thank you so much for for that perspective. I, I you know, it's incredible to hear about these operations that are necessary to keep the sort of war fighters at the at the front going. And um, I wanted to ask you, JD, we had a comment. It's going to kind of combine what Joel was uh, saying to us with, uh, with sort of the invasion in Iraq. Benjamin writes. I was struck by comments made by your guests that gave me flashbacks to the U.S. invasion of Iraq. Can you draw parallels to the miscalculations made by the U.S. about Iraqi infrastructure and how we'd use it following invasion compared to Russian miscalculations and their invasion in Ukraine? Can there be lessons learned for any nation thinking about invading another and perhaps why 
it's a bad idea. JD. So yes, it's um, it's a it's a it's a big endeavor that is fraught with risk. So your you know your listener is is correct. Uh, we sometimes the first part of the invasion of Iraq has has kind of been um, idolized or lionized a little bit, um, and we forget there were some problems there. It was a you know it was a huge movement by a very large force, not as large, interestingly enough, as what the Russians are trying to bring in here. Uh, but there were logistical problems. The rear area got attacked um, in Nazaria and supply lines, and they had to take an operational pause as they, you know, as the army and the Marine Corps moved up to Baghdad. So I, I think the parallel is when you move large amounts of forces over great distances, and you don't control absolutely control the the, the area behind you. Um, you're you're going to have logistics problems. You know the, the the supplies that you need, the breakdowns that are going to happen are going to cause complications. So you know what we're seeing in Ukraine, I think, can be generalized to you know major conflicts, um, but you know, it's exacerbated by some of the, some of the factors that your caller alluded to, although, you know, I'm not sure, again, we can generalize that, mm-hmm. you know, the trucks are old and, and broken mm-hmm. down, although, you know, Russian equipment isn't as, isn't as uh, maintained as well. And it probably is more prone to breakdown than, than our stuff is. Um, I think also the idea of supplying by air, you know, that works okay for small units that are dispersed, but the kind, you know, the kind of, you know, the amount of that the Russians have in play, plus the kind of things that they're consuming, which are now fuel and ammunition, which is big and heavy, and it's really hard to move that by air. So that takes you back to, you know, can they use the rail lines? Can are the roadways secure? And do they have the you know do they have the capacity to to move that? Um, and just one other thing, I wanted to follow up on what Mark had said earlier because I think that's really important. Um, you do have some you have some differences in the way that the conf, you know the fighting is going um, based on geography, and and that geography is related to what types of units and where they've come from. As Mark said, the you know the the Russian military that is engaged in the south, that's the one that was already there. That's the one that is the highest. There was the highest readiness units in the Russian military, probably the best trained and equipped. The units that are coming in from the north are the ones they've shipped in from the central and the far eastern military districts, meaning lower readiness units. Um, their equipment probably isn't as good. And because they had to move them in, it would not be surprising to me that, you know, you can't move everything and they might've shortchanged some of the logistics um, capabilities as they made those deployments, you know, across half of the half of the territory of Russia. You know, JD, I've heard this term readiness. Can you just like describe what do we mean when we say readiness? What does that mean? That that means um, the the there's there's a few factors. You know, first is you know, do you have your personnel? Um, is your unit you know up to the number that it's supposed to have? Have the people been in the unit and have you gone through a training cycle? So, in in the U.S. system, Army and Marine Corps and, and Air Forces and Navies, 
you know, you go through a, a cycle where you prepare to be either deployed or ready to deploy. And in the course of that cycle, you bring your training levels up and, you know, you're at a, you're at a, everybody kind of knows what they're supposed to do. Um, and then there's also material readiness and logistics readiness. You know, is your equipment prepared? Is your equipment maintained? Do you have your supplies, your ammunition, your medical supplies, your repair parts? Are they readily available to you so that if you do have to go deploy or go into action, you're prepared for those you know, eventualities that Cynthia talked about where you plan that things are, things are going to break? Um, so to Mark's point, you know, the units in the South are at a better readiness and probably better prepared to go into the fighting than, as I said, the ones that have, that are coming through Belarus, which, which have been moved from, you know, parts of the Russian military that weren't maintained at, at the higher readiness standard. Yeah. Thank you so much for that. We are talking about the everyday details of waging war and the logistical issues that have stalled the Russian invasion of Ukraine, at least in some parts of the country. And for now, with J.D. Williams, Senior International Defense Policy Researcher at RAND Corporation, Dr. Cynthia Cook, Director of the Defense Industrial Initiatives Group and a Senior Fellow at the International Security Program at the Center of Center for Strategic and International Studies, as well as Mark Champion, Senior Reporter Bloomberg News, and we're loving hearing from you. We're getting in a lot of really, really interesting comments where we're going to get to after the break. Um, would also love to take your calls. Have you served in the military? Do you have experience with logistical issues that were that were difficult, like Joel from Martinez, who we heard earlier? And what questions do you have about how logistical issues are affecting the war? the war in Ukraine. Give us a call now, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can get in touch, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, or KQED Forum. Or you can email your questions to forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This is Forum. Stay tuned for more after the break. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about logistics in Ukraine. We have a lot of listener questions uh, coming in, and I would love to to get to some of them. Uh, Lori writes, 
I haven't understood what missiles to destroy tanks and planes Ukraine currently has given to them by U.S. and NATO nations. Have they been effective? And why hasn't the 40-mile lineup of Russian equipment been destroyed? We're used to seeing equipment eliminated precisely by drones or whatever, so it's puzzling to me why the Russian convoy hasn't been eliminated. Um, Dr. Cook, you want to address that one? Well, I'll uh, just touch lightly on it. Yeah, uh, sure. That's, that's <laughs> The Ukrainians do have some uh, weapons that they had in advance of this conflict. And uh, what we see from press reports is that other nations are continuing to supply additional ones. There's a a time lag in getting them across the border and into use. So I think if if that continues, we'll see some more uh, uh, ability of the Ukrainians to target uh, those uh, systems. Uh, Another listener writes, I'm curious about all the information being shared on Twitter and other social media. Should we be worried that it is helping the Russians? Won't the Russian army learn from early mistakes and retool? Mark uh, Champion, you want to take that one? Uh, Yes, I mean, the Russians aren't learning from early mistakes and they are retooling. I I don't think they need uh, Twitter in order to understand what's going on. I mean, they're, they're right there. Um, but, uh, you know, there's uh, one of the things that's interesting in, the, in recent days, it's, it's actually been very slow moving uh, in, for the last five days, really. Um, and one of the reasons uh, we think is that uh, uh, the troops from some of the northern towns where they've been really dug in and, and uh, trying to uh, take those towns of Sumy and Chernihov, um, what they've done is just start moving those troops further down uh, towards Kiev, where they've already got troops, um, you know, ahead that have, have, are, are approaching from the east. But what they're trying to do there is precisely to secure their supply lines and to and that that's what they've been spending the last few days doing is to try and create a secure corridor to bring, you know, material supplies and so on up to the front on the eastern side of Kiev. Hmm. Let's bring in caller John from Petaluma. Welcome, John. Hey, how you doing, Alice? Alexis? Hey, good, good. I'm wondering the impact of the weather of winter into spring, where the roads were frozen and then they get slushy. Uh, if that has made any kind of a what? What is the impact of that? Uh, JD, do you want to uh, take uh, take that question? Thanks so much. Yeah, John. I- I actually uh, actually had an interview with CNN International on exactly that topic before the conflict. Um, it, it doesn't appear that the weather has been that bad. Um, I, I don't think the roads were frozen before um, the, the invasion started, and, and there has been times when it has snowed, and, and, you, and you see that. Um, it, it's, the weather will impact um, movement in general. It will certainly have more of an impact on logistics because the, you know, the, the combat vehicles are built to um, go over rough terrain more so. But when, you know, you're bringing up heavy stuff like fuel, like ammunition in those trucks, they're road bound and the roads, if, as they, you know, whether it's weather or whether it gets, it's just deterioration from the heavy kind of use that they're getting, 
that is going to slow things down. And then if you get vehicles that break down or are um, attacked and, and damaged and disabled by combat, then that further clogs the roads. And, you know, you, you've all seen um, reports when there's a snowstorm and, a, and an interstate gets blocked because of truck jackknifes. Those are the kind of complications um, that you're going to have. Um, there's it, the weather is a factor of that, but there's, there's also other things like mechanical breakdowns, like actions that the Ukrainians can take that don't take a lot of force, just, a, you know, just a, an ambush or two that can really um, help gum up that really gum up the works. Mm-hmm. Kai tweets, there's been little discussion of the Ukrainians. It's a good point, Kai. Their apparent success has been really inspiring, and they may be wisely keeping details private. But any sense on how their logistics are working? Any areas of improvement? Dr. Cook? They're facing a fundamentally different conflict than the Russians are. They're fighting from their home territory they know the roads, they know where their gas stations are, they know where their food supplies are. So we haven't been seeing so much coming out of the conflict about Ukrainian logistics, or at least I haven't seen it, maybe the other panelists have. So um, the challenge for everything about the uh, what Ukraine is doing, however, is that Uh, the social media tends to select on good news stories. Many of us in the West are pro-Ukraine, are aghast at this invasion. And so we're looking for good news. And so that that may be why we haven't heard anything. Yeah. I have also uh, worried about that, just that we don't, we aren't actually getting an undistorted view uh, of, of what's happening on the ground there. And it may, people may not be prepared for the continuing brutality of this uh, of this conflict. Let's bring in um, Kevin from Santa Rosa. Welcome, Kevin. Hi. Um, so my question is, I guess, uh, I was very surprised by how many Ukrainians chose to stay. And I've heard from several of your guests that the Russians kind of expected to punch through the Ukrainian defenses very quickly. And I wonder if that was part of their logistics plan was to seize control of Ukrainian supplies and pillage as they go. And maybe the increased amount of Ukrainian resistance is not only consuming more food, right? More Ukrainian staying means that they have to eat food. So there's like less supplies in grocery stores than they were expecting, but also that the Ukrainian resistance is preventing the Russians from resupplying as they had intended. Yeah. JD, you want to take that one? Sure. Um, I, I, it's an interesting it's an interesting theory um but i i don't really think that's a that's a huge issue um the the logistics that the russians need are you know are, are fuel ammunition parts for their particular vehicles um not the kind of things you can you can really forage um or or, or you should plan on foraging um you know maybe you get some fuel from uk ukrainian grass stations but um i i really think that's that that's not part of the equation i i think a big part of the equation is that with you know as mark said if you know, originally the plan was not to have to fight or not to have to fight a lot and now they are engaged in some in some serious and widespread combat, then your consumption rates are going up. Um, your consumption rates of of ammunition, of fuel, um, 
yeah, you will need more food than, than you had planned. And that does impact on the foraging, but the equipment starts breaking down. You need to repair it and replace it. Um, and then you have, you know, casualties, as I said earlier. So I, I really think it's, it's a matter of, as Cynthia said at the outset, they, they, they didn't, because they hadn't planned for a long and difficult campaign. Um, now they're really, they're really stuck in having to, having to, uh, reconfigure and, and probably in some cases improvise how they're going to keep the, the, the fight going. Yeah. Um, Dr. Cook, earlier uh, listener Hannah had to drop from a phone call, but she had a really interesting question, which is how are the sanctions, how quickly basically are the sanctions going to have an effect on the battlefield? I mean, we already have seen in Russia that some types of factors are having to shut down for the same reasons that some automakers in the U.S. have had to shut down, which is a semiconductor shortage as they haven't been able to import their normal supplies. So how quickly do we think those sanctions, if, if they're going to have an effect on the battlefield, on the logistical side, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll start to see that? The impact of the sanctions will not be immediate. The Presumably, the Russians have some stockpile of parts, they have some stockpile of fuel, they have some stockpile of ammunition. Once they run through the parts and ammunition, that's when they run into challenges, but it's not necessarily material that they were buying on the open market. Uh, longer term challenges for them really will be things like machine tools that are used to, to fashion those parts. So we would expect the sanctions to have sort of a longer tail than that, rather than an immediate impact. Mm. And uh, I I'd like to follow up on something that JD said uh, in his last comment on uh, logistics. Uh, we think about fuel, we think about ammunition, we think about spare parts. Ammunition is often thought to be part of a combat force. You know, that's how they have their war fighting effect. But it's, you know, you need a certain amount and you run out. And so it really is uh, a logistics challenge as well. So really everything to do with, with war fighting, you have the tooth and you have the tail. And you really have to understand that that tail is the tooth. Effectively managing your tail is really part of your war fighting capability. Mark Champion, uh, listener Remy writes, the global supply chain was fraught. Some called it broken well before the Ukraine invasion. Do you have any thoughts on that impacting the Russians' uh, readiness? Any of your colleagues at Bloomberg done work on that? As, as Cynthia said, uh, most of what they really need right now is stuff that they make. Um, and, you know, for their aircraft and so on, then the, you you are going to have, you, you know, you could re very quickly have some uh, replacement part issues um, because they they, they do uh, require more uh, import, imported pieces and chips and all sorts of things for that. But what the, the, the thing um, was, uh, I really wanted to follow on what Cynthia was saying because it really struck me. I was talking to someone about what makes the Russian military different. And they uh, gave me some numbers that really struck me. So the, the, it's an artillery army, um, and that's how they lead. Uh, and it's kind of what you see them starting to do now. Um, but what that means is uh, a Russian army, you know, a unit, uh, you know, don't mean the whole Russian army, but an, an army, like the First Guards Army or whatever, um, 
it will have between 56 and 90 multiple rocket launch systems uh, with it. And a single volley from uh, that uh, those um, uh, units, uh, it then needs to be uh, you know, reloaded. And a single volley from 90 of those units um, requires 90 trucks because every single one uh, to reload one of those multiple rocket uh, launch systems takes a full truck. So you're talking 90 trucks every time you wow. fire a volley from, I mean, an army is a big unit and 90 is, is a lot, but that it just, you know, puts it into perspective. And then the other thing that is- well, Hold on, is, just know, one sec. I uh, just want to pause for just one second. This is a fundraising period for KQED Public Radio. For more information about how to support KQED, go to kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. And you can keep going if you'd like to, Mark. Yeah, no, I, I was just going to say, you know, and then, you know, think about 90 trucks uh, because you, you, that that famous column up in the north, uh, it, you know, it doesn't take long because the trucks are supposed to have 50 meters between them. And you pretty soon you, you do the math. You've got 100 trucks, you've got 50 meters. That's, you know, that's five kilometers right there. Um, so you it, 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 these are huge operations. Let's bring in another caller, Dorothea from Berkeley. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. Um, wow. You know, uh, my observation here is that your choice of subject matter of logistics is kind of a distraction for us. You're, it's like we're watching a movie happening, and the movie is moving towards the death of most Ukrainians. It's inevitable. And here we are entertaining ourselves by talking about logistics when we know that the Russians, all they have to do is send their planes and bomb the hell out of everybody. And that's what they're doing. So that's what they will do. So this whole thing about the, um, you know, the, the trucks lining up and all of that, give me a break. You, you guys got to be kidding. <laughs> I'm like shocked. This is, uh, this is inevitable. What Putin wants is greater Russia. He wants the old satellite countries back, like the Soviet Union had and the Tsar had, and that's what he's aiming at. So if we're going to pretend that this war is going to stop with the Ukraine, it's, it's, a, it's an illusion. So I'd like to hear what your guests yeah. think of that. Dorothea, uh, thanks for that perspective, you know, just wanted to know, even the artillery volleys, you know, like we were just hearing, require this sort of logistics. And I, you know, uh, Dr. Cynthia Cook, I, I know that. Um, I'll, I'll jump in. Yeah, yeah go ahead. <laughs> I, I'm happy to take that. I 100 percent agree with the caller that the human costs of this war are just horrible. I mean, just the, the, the pictures we see of, of people suffering and getting killed, of civilians being attacked, of hospitals being bombed, it is just shocking. So I completely share your perspective on that. And I also agree that it is very worrisome about what it means. So uh, 100% agree with that. The topic here is really on what the logistics challenges that the Russians are facing. And there may be lessons learned there to try to hold off their forces as they 
attack Ukraine. So I think that there is room for both kinds of analysis, one that understand the human costs of war and a second to look for uh, the weaknesses of our adversaries. So thank you for raising that. Yeah. Well, and J.D., I might kick it to you, too. I mean, while it is true that Russian force is extremely strong and that this war has never looked good for Ukraine, the nature of how the logistics breakdowns have changed the the day-to-day progress of the war seems like it may have a ha- have big effects. I mean, that's why I wanted to do the show, Dorothea, just for, for what it's worth. What do you think, J.D.? So um, you know, I absolutely agree with Cynthia. And, and you know, I've, I've said in some other interviews, we, we tend, you know, those of us that, that are analysts or practitioners of warfare, we sometimes talk about it and, and try to talk about it in scientific or analytic terms, but we can't forget, you know, the human cost of it. And, and that certainly isn't it. But or, or certainly is not, I think, what, what we're doing here. Um, I, I think what we do need to do is, is try to project um, what's the pathway, where where is this conflict going to go, and what then are you know potential outcomes or actions that can be taken on on you know either side or from the outside, and so by understanding the difficulties that the Russian military has helps us maybe to project what they might do next, um, which unfortunately is is probably not going to be better, uh, more worse as Mark indicates. Uh, but I think it, it helps us to understand what might happen and then potentially uh, plan for actions that, that maybe can uh, head the worst off. Yeah. And I just want to say, Dorothy, one last thing, which is just that I hope this coverage doesn't sound overly cheery. I think that we have had many moments through our coverage of this war that have tried to make that human toll uh, clear and that... The Ukrainians are in trouble. They're just, everyone knows that. Uh, we've been talking about logistics and the Russian invasion with Mark Champion, senior reporter at Bloomberg News, Dr. Cynthia Cook, director of Defense Industrial Initiatives Group, and J.D. Williams, uh, researcher at RAND. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This is Forum. Thanks so much for joining us. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way, from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. 
Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Hey, I'm Brian Stelter, and I hope you'll join me on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Every Thursday, I'm getting the inside take from the best reporters in the country on what figures like Elon Musk, Donald Trump, Kevin McCarthy, and Marjorie Taylor Greene are doing. I think she wants to make things happen. She wants to get legislation passed. She made clear to me that she wants to have a president who upholds Christian values. She embraces the term Christian nationalist. That's Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Available wherever you get your podcasts.